don't let the what ifs intimidate you so much that you don't try. You're going to be far better off and probably far more successful just committing and then figuring it out. back to the Value to Peak Nutrition Podcast. This is part two with Mark and I, where we will recap a few different things related to listener questions, particularly on the training approach that we took to the hike, the nutrition we had on the hike, gear we loved, hated, used, didn't use, etc. Part three um, will cover here in a couple of weeks, and it'll have four different death hike veterans on that episode who will reflect on you know their past journeys on the death hike and cover five different questions that folks had written in about that so that'll be interesting and coming up soon and by the time this is coming out there should be the 2022 installment of the hashtag gummy in the wild contest that we run every year which is uh just a cool way for you to enter take fun pictures during the season win some gear from exo mountain gear sns archery our golly, ivory holsters, XPED, and some stuff from us. So keep an eye out on that. There should be a social media post kind of explaining how to enter that, etc. Mark, this is uh, the second time we've done this. It's going to be even better this time. <laughs> I hope so. We did this a couple of weeks ago. We, <laughs> we, uh, we jumped on, we recorded it. Well, I thought we recorded it. We talked about it and it was great conversation, but unfortunately I did not press record. So we... I hung up and yeah, I felt like an idiot and humbly had to ask you after that. I don't know if I told you this, but I jumped on over the course of an hour and just tried to record it myself. I was like, this sucks. I just need to find humble myself, <laughs> ask him if he can get on and, and do it again, because this is just, this is just pointless. So here we are again, the second time around recording everything. Um, uh, the questions that you guys had about training, about nutrition on the hike, pack weight, gear, etc. Sort of the fun, funner stuff, I guess, to nerd out about. So thanks for coming back on. You bet. That's good. And it's been a couple of weeks, so I honestly don't remember the first conversation or everything we covered. So I'm excited to get back into the questions. Yeah, I could imagine you've had a lot going on the last couple of weeks as the season gets close. So I guess the good, the best place to start would be the training perspective. And I think... You know, there's a number of different nuances you can dive into with the training, but I think the over the overarching question that a lot of people want to know is when you have something as big as the death hike, which isn't just like a weekend hike, it's it's a fairly big undertaking for a lot of people, myself included. Is there any specifics you took to approaching training, even in past death hikes, since you're kind of a veteran? And did that differ at all for this one? Yeah, I think there's there's a few things that stand out to me for the death hike that are different than um, like even hunting season, right? So um, training for a death hike versus training for hunting season are going to look similar in the sense that at the end of the day, you're hiking through the mountains with the pack on. Those are the similarities. But the differences with the death hike are you never need, oh, I shouldn't say never because we could talk about a different death hike story that <laughs> it was going to counteract what I was getting ready to say. You don't normally need to pack very much weight. So like in this death hike, for example, uh, we knew that pack weight was going to be 30-ish pounds. Um, so you're not training for, oh, we may have to pack out an animal. That's not a situation here. So you don't need to do a ton of pack weight. Um, you need to try and get, a, obviously, a lot of elevation. That was going to be something relevant to this death hike and to most of them. And then just total time on your feet. Um, so just putting in miles and putting in time on your feet, ideally again, with your pack and in the gear that you're going to use for me, that, that felt like my biggest weak point going into this death hike is just, I didn't have, um, I just didn't have time in the schedule practically to get longer efforts in, uh, to go out and do a four or six or eight hour effort. And so for me going into this year, uh, and it, this is different than last previous years, um, because I didn't have the extended periods of time, I was just trying to honestly get as much, <laughs> as much training effect in as I could with limited time. So if I had two hours, 
that meant I was like very intentionally seeking out how can I get as much elevation as possible in two hours or how can I ramp up the intensity, um, do different things like that with the short amount of time that I had. And I was honestly seeing you, Kyle, do these longer efforts and bigger days and was jealous um, and somewhat apprehensive for myself to be like, I, I know I can do this um because it's a big mental effort as much as it is physical but definitely going into it, i didn't feel as physically prepared this year as i had in years past yeah interesting like and i knew that about you and i knew that like in our conversations you you're never concerned because you've always sort of had like the the idea of it's all like have to give like i can't change my time right and and you can only give so much and i would say too you, you know for me let me let me rephrase this in conversations that i've had with people i think the perception is that we meaning anyone who participates in a hike like this or even you know athletes or whatever um we stay in this condition year round, right? Like, like we're, we could go out and do these things year round. And that is 195% not true of me for sure. Me, there were several, you know, so my, my training started in February, worked through the end of June. There were multiple, uh, hikes in there that were eight and nine hours long, consistent covering more than 20 miles. And there were lots of little, even more little four and five hour endeavors. And so obviously you're capped on time. I have a wife, I have two little boys, I have, you know, work, I have all these other things. Not only is that unfeasible to maintain that same type of a training schedule without compromising one of those other four little things, I don't want to because I want a life. <laughs> so, you know, it's... um. I wouldn't say that you're not in the condition to do that year round, but you're not in, you're not maintaining that type of a training regimen year round. I think one of the, a couple of other things that stood out to me about my training was number one, it's phased. So you have like a baseline fitness level, right? And everything builds on top of that progressively over time. So you think like, geez, February to June, what are you doing? And in reality, it's what spacing it out over that time does as opposed to trying to fit it in like an eight week block is it significantly reduces your injury as you add volume, right? So I'm able to add little bitty increments spread out over six months, four months, five months, whatever, as opposed to, oh crap, I've got eight weeks. I need to go do a 20 miler. My body's ability to handle that 20 miler after only doing one hour hikes versus going from one hour hikes to three to four to six to seven to nine was a lot better. So I learned a lot about phasing uh, different programs, different training blocks. And then the second thing um, would be you, there is no substitution for time on your feet, right? Like just walking for eight and nine hours, even if it's not super challenging in and of itself, like there is no way to duplicate that, you know, and, and likewise, I'm sort of jumping around here, but even thinking about the different phasing, you're viewing your, there are components to a hike, right? There are short, steep, high output climbs. There are long, arduous stretches of flat ground there are declines there are side hills there are all these different things a good training program includes each of those separately as well as together right like so you are training high intensity efforts you are training long arduous hikes you are training elevation climbs you are training with heavy, heavy weight so that the mediocre weight that we're trying to carry looks different. And honestly, if it's, if it's in a person's budget and you were really detail oriented, it would be worth hiring someone just to take the guesswork out of like, just to take the guesswork out of it. And we've talked about that before with the atomic athlete programming that we've done is, mm -hmm. you know, people will say, well, is it good? Well, it is good, but 
And those guys are very intelligent, but more than anything, the value of me waking up, just following what's on the paper versus having to sit down and write a week's worth of programming out every week for myself, like it's, you know, you save so much time on that front. So yeah, the training was good. It was intense. Um, And I would be curious to know what you think about this too. One of the premises, particularly in the mountaineering world, is when you're training, you're not training at high outputs all the time, right? Like where your intensity is at 85%, 90% of your max. The idea behind endurance training is that you're training at a relatively low percentage of your max for long periods of time, which is going to look different for everyone, right? So But when you go on a big group hike like this, if you're, to me, one thing that's different is it's not necessarily about how good of shape you're in. Like people would say that people would think, okay, well, I'm in as good a shape as this guy if I can keep pace with this guy for 35 miles. When in reality, your max threshold, your stride length, et cetera, may put you slower. Even if you could go at your slower pace, you could go all day. But if you're trying to keep up with someone whose stride length is lower or max output is higher, you will burn out faster. Do you have any suggestions on thoughts on that? I guess for one, or even second to that, I would be curious in big group environments like this, what does that look like where it's not necessarily a guy's physical condition being good or not his baseline because of any number of reasons may be slower than the group. So he, it's, it's hard to maintain that level of output for a long stretch for guys who are a lot taller or whose output is a lot higher baseline outputs a lot higher than theirs. Yeah. I think there's a lot of variables there. I mean, there's, um, you mentioned stride length, taller, et cetera. Like there's no doubt that me and you hiking together, Kyle, are going to have a different level of output to do the same amount of ground. Right. <laughs> Just because, um, you know, I'm six, two with much longer legs. Like that's going to just be different for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, uh, energy systems, right? Like, have you trained to favor higher intensities for shorter durations? Have you trained, um, to optimize your performance for lower intensities, but at longer durations, um, and as you said before, you need a bit of both. I mean, on something like the death hike, there are moments where you're going just up some very, very steep poles. And um, even at a relatively slow pace, it's a high intensity effort, right? Just because it's so steep and you're carrying pack weight, et cetera. And then there's these stretches where it's it's longer, it's less elevation, or it's more gradual elevation. Um, and so, I, yeah, I just think that the different energy systems and how people trained um, can affect that for sure. Leading back to pushing to keep up with someone versus kind of doing things at your own pace. I mean, that's one of the things I think is really important about the death hike is guys, especially as they get more experience, realize that they need to hike their own hike in a way. Right. And I feel like for the, you doing this for the first time, Kyle, you did that well in terms of not letting it get to you that, okay, this is my pace where I feel comfortable and where I am in the quote unquote pack and not getting caught up in like trying to race to keep up with anybody. Um, I've seen that before where guys go hard, want to be out front, et cetera. But then maybe they do that on day one and then now they're destroyed for the rest of the effort. So there's definitely, um, any, any long effort such as the death hike, but it could be many other things, obviously pacing. Um, and I mean, pacing both very literally in terms of choosing your pace, but just pacing in terms of managing your output in a sustainable way. That's going to allow you to be, most efficient and most consistent over a long duration is going to be really important. Um, and I think that is influenced by both your training as well as, um, your physical nature, right? Like your build, how much weight you're carrying, 
um, the energy systems that you've developed, et cetera. Yeah. And, and that is, I mean, you, you and I are prime example. So even like we talked about in the first episode of this, the hike started out from, a, from, a you know, our lodge to the trailhead, which was totally flat. And even on that, right, totally flat ground, no elevation played a role. We hadn't climbed nothing like that. I'm like struggling to keep pace with a lot of these guys just on the flat part. Right. And, and I mean, I'm not an elite level athlete, but that's not hard, right? Like there's no variables in there that would say, Oh, well, a guy's in a better condition because of elevation or climbing or whatever. And so you do have to almost take your ego and stuff it down. And really, I mean, it's so cliche, but we've said it so many times on this and you'll hear it a lot in part three. It is so much about hiking your own hike because I could have gone forever at my pace, right? Like I, I, I never felt like I never felt even remotely close to tapped out going at my pace, but on the climbs, trying to keep pace with the group, I would struggle. So I, I, I just had to remind myself, just go at your pace, you know, the route, right? And if you, if you go at your pace, you'll have, a, for me, the longevity and finishing it was way more important than anything else. And there is, I mean, there is an ego in me that's like, okay, well, you know, you want to be the guy at camp where like, oh yeah, he, he did well. He, you know, he kept up with the group or whatever, but I don't know. Like, I, I don't want to blame it on stature. I don't want to blame it on anything, but I think that there are variables that, are at play beyond just fitness and and more than anything like I, I say that to encourage people don't let that prevent you from going or even more so if you have some big trip with a big group of people and you find yourself at your own pace that happens to be behind the lead pack don't fall prey to the idea of your mind badgering you telling you're not as good as them or you're not as fast or people are thinking actually nobody's thinking anything about you right and yeah. and and just to go at your own pace right and and people will be far more um i even hate to use this word but far more impressed or whatever if you finish than if you just completely destroy yourself day one and have to sit out day two and day three because you're so so taxed so anyway i was curious uh as your of your thoughts on that yeah i mean i think i don't know if it was the previous conversation we had or maybe the part one we've already released but at the end of the hike no one is cheering less for anyone who came in last everyone's cheering for everyone who finished equally right so like you know i would happen to be there hours before other guys right and when other guys are coming up that final hill and like ending this multi-day pursuit and i know what they've gone through there's zero percent of me that's going well i was here six hours before they were a hundred percent of me is going heck yes like you crushed it you did it you did all the miles you're here you probably suffered more than i did like if if anything else, a lot of times I'm looking at the guys in the back and um, thinking that they've probably worked harder than I did in a way, which may sound backwards, but I know that that can be the case because uh, going back to like training, like some guys don't have the opportunity to train either for this event specifically or as much year round. And maybe they're working way harder than I am, even though it looks like they're finishing you know, and a quote unquote worst position or whatever. And I admire that more than um, like, you know, not to speak down of him by any means as an absolute stud, but like Travis is an animal, like a physical beast. And I'm not saying he doesn't work hard and he doesn't suffer. Like I know he pushes himself to the absolute max. He's going to finish first every time. And I don't, it's not that I respect that any less, but I also know that for some guys they're working just as hard and pushing themselves just as much and not not being out in front yeah i think i mean that's a great that's a great way to put it and you know to round off this part of of the topic like your your pace is going to be different right and and not to let that 
mentally wrap you up to the point of where you a don't want to commit because you're worried about what someone's going to think or you're going to hold someone back or whatever if you have trained for something and you have a pace sticking to that pace is key in my opinion to to finishing and and then also just walking yourself through the idea that it doesn't mean that any that you didn't do enough to prepare or anything else like that it's just a different pace Right. I mean, and a prime example of this would be someone like, you know, Cam Haynes, who runs all of the time for anyone who runs on a regular basis to go out. Like, let's say someone's running 50 miles a week on a trail to go out and train with him, get smoked by him does not mean you're not in good shape. It just means he's and it doesn't even necessarily mean he's in better shape. It just means his pace is different. It means that his his, his, his maximum allowable output is different. He's trained that over years, but in our mind, it's like, well, if I'm in the back or if I'm slower, I'm worse. And I just, I don't know. I don't think that's true necessarily because of all the variables. Yeah. Anytime you're talking about like quote unquote, good shape or performance, it's like, well, good shape for what? Um, cause there's, there's specificity to things where, yeah. um, I can think of a friend I have here at home, Kevin, and like, dude's an absolute animal like he's a beast he's a physical specimen and when i work out with him more often than not he's going to crush me but then there's certain workouts where i just have a a better strength or a better uh capability at certain things and i can beat him so you know it's like okay well maybe maybe when it comes to the death hike you're in you know the back of the group but if we were doing some sort of other physical endeavor you would be crushing everyone else yeah couple of uh like random rapid fire questions that came in on the topic we've kind of already answered a couple of these do you only train as far as hiking or do you throw some strength training in as well uh for the death hike specifically i don't do much strength training but i maintain some strength training while training for the death hike if that makes sense meaning i'm not training something um specific for the death hike from a strength perspective uh, but I don't completely neglect strength training as I'm focusing on training for the death hike or hunting season for that matter. So um, going back to the training year and what that looks like, I'm not always in peak shape for something like a death hike. Um, but there's times of year where obviously there's a focus. And so when it comes to focusing for an events or for a certain type of physical endeavor, that takes more priority in my training, but I don't neglect everything else completely. Um, I want to maintain some level of strength while training for endurance, for example. Um, good things that come to mind that could be considered strength training or more strength endurance type movements. So for the death hike, doing like a higher volume of lunges or jump lunges, um, some of the complexes, like you mentioned from the guys at Atomic Athlete, um, they're more strength-ish movements meaning they're not just um endurance they're not just cardio they're not just covering ground but they can help you tremendously for those types of pursuits because it's training strength endurance in the lower body yeah i think this is a good a good part to introduce so there's this fancy word word called periodization which is basically you spend a block of time focusing on one thing when that block is up you transfer that focus to something new so with the death hike specifically, like it doesn't look like your bro splits of chest and buys and tries and shoulders and all of these other things, right? There's maybe a time, like maybe you focus on that in the off season, but for you to accomplish, I can't tell you how many times I talk to folks and they say, well, you know, I want to get lean. I want to get strong. I want to increase my bench and I want to increase endurance. And it's like, okay, well that's, you know, are you ready to do this over 18 months? Because those all look completely different from one another and you cannot do all of them at one time. You have to phase them if you want to do them well, mm-hmm. specifically for the death hike. I did not give up strength training. In fact, I was strength training three times a week still, but the type of strength training was more geared to better improve my hiking not to just get stronger right like i'm not trying to go on stage for a photo shoot or impress my wife i'm trying to build certain muscles specifically to make the hiking easier better better endurance etc right and so that includes a lot of like what you had mentioned with more high volume stuff 
Um, but it also included a lot of single leg work, like box step ups and different levels of box step ups, right? So you got like a medium box, a high box, lighter weight, no weight. Uh, I mean, just a whole variety of different things. And as a part of that too, was a lot of um, preventative stuff, right? Like some rolling, some stretching, some preemptive, uh, exercises that just elongate the muscle to try to prevent any sort of an injury. And that like, they'll call that quote unquote prehab. It always feels like such a waste of time, but in the, it's like brushing your teeth, right? It's like, God, I just want to go to bed. I do not feel like dealing with this, but in the back of my yeah. mind, I'm like, well, you're definitely not going to want to deal with getting a filling. So you brush them. And to me, the prehab stuff is a lot of the same. Like, I don't want to deal with this. Just let me do what matters and let me move on with my life. When in reality, I know that you're not going to be moving on from anywhere if you wind up injured and don't take care of these things. Um, so it's a, it is a challenge, you know, to to think about like my highest volume days, including an eight or nine hour hike, potentially another three hour hike, plus some heavy pack intervals, plus three days of strength training. There were some weeks that would be, you know, what, probably close to 15 hours of training, which is nowhere near what I normally do, like on a, the rest of the year. Um, so, yeah, it, I still incorporated it, but what it was looked a lot different. That's a ton of training. It is a ton of training, and I was not a happy guy on those weeks. <laughs> yeah. I would love it personally if, you know, I didn't have 20 hours of other commitments right like oh, if i 100%. literally had the time to be like all right i get three hours today to do whatever i want physically move my body get stronger etc it's like that'd be amazing but yeah not reality but for yeah for me like uh, you know i care a lot about being a good husband and a good dad and being a good not just a good business owner but providing a really good service and all of those things take a lot of time and a lot of intentionality so when I'm dedicating 15 some odd hours in a week to not to those things, it really bugs me. I just want to get it over with and go about my life. So yeah, I did not, um, it's, it's not something I maintain year round. It's not something I want to maintain year round. I don't know if I could afford the food that it takes to maintain that year round. I was eating, I was eating a lot of food, uh, during that time just to try to maintain my weight. And, um, yeah, it, it, but but to your point, if I did not have any of those obligations, I loved it. I would, I mean, I would love it. I enjoy like just being out. I talked to my mom a lot on the phone. She loved it. Listened to a lot of podcasts, <laughs> a lot of audiobooks. So, I, yeah, it was it was it was it was fun um, in that sense. But you've got this ebb and pull of. I actually talked to a guy on Instagram the other day who was a former competitive mountain bike endurance racer who quit because he hit like 36, 37 and realized how much time co commitment it was. I think he was training 5,000 hours per year. And he had, he's like, I had to evaluate if I wanted a family or if I wanted that. And he was married at the time. So he, he left endurance mountain bike racing and, and opted for the family, which I was applauding because it's tough for anybody who does endurance stuff professionally to know the right answer, but then go pursue it. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I think I struggle with in general, not that I'm a professional level, anything, but I just have that personality where if I, if I do something, I want to do it to my best of my ability, but then I struggle with, okay, I know I'm leaving things on the table from what could be my quote unquote best, but I don't have the ability to give it everything I wish I could to achieve my best. And so then I struggle with like, was it even worth it? Right? Like if I can't do my best, should I not do it at all? Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, and I think a lot of guys are that way. Yeah, for sure. All right. So let's jump into the nutrition as far as the, the hike itself goes, I, I guess a good place to start would be when you're thinking about this, cause right. Cause it's a ton of fuel what strategy do you take to even sit down and start planning something like this out? Call you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that as like a salesy thing, but um, I told you before, Kyle, like part of me, again, going back to, it was just this busy, busy season of life leading up to this death hike. So not only did I struggle to train the way I wanted to train, I struggled to prepare and period right and part of that was food so on previous death hikes i was more intentional had more time um 
made more things myself. Like practically I made some of my own bars. I dehydrated fruit and made these mixes and did all this and did all that. And I remember telling you like flat out, like I'm, I truly pretty much have to go to target and almost buy everything for the death hike. Like I'm going to be throwing this together. So, um, with your help, I set out, I created kind of a total calorie goal, um, and then started to look at what percentage of that should be carbs, um, meet a minimum protein requirement in that, and then just kind of let the rest fall where it may, um, in terms of fat calories. But, um, it wasn't ideal, but, um, everything worked well and quite literally almost everything on my list came from target for the most part <laughs> it was bad i just i looked like i was uh like my target shopping cart looked like i was a 13 year old girl getting ready to have a slumber party it was a lot of <laughs> junk food oh yeah in a second like we'll talk about what we actually brought um but i remember looking at your list and being a little jealous of a few things so mine was um mine was way more intricate but that's also because it doesn't it doesn't take me a lot of time to come up with that, right? Like I, I bet you I put this together in, geez, less than 10 minutes. And so what I ended up doing was I broke it up, you know, I had a spreadsheet and on the left-hand column, I broke it up by hours of the day. So anticipated the time we'd probably wake up and start moving, anticipated the time that we would probably stop moving, which was really challenging because there's 24 hours of daylight, right? Like we're, while we're there and knowing Steve, I didn't know if I should put a 24 hour plan together because I knew that that could be a potential option or if I should put like, you know, what's a physically feasible plan. And even if the hours don't match up, the time moving does. And so I created this in the left-hand column um, and then basically tried to fill in something every 60 to 90 minutes right and so like in in our program we call it the rule of 60 which basically says anything over 60 minutes you need to be replacing 60 to 90 grams of carbs every one or two hours so that's what i did i created this time list every other hour i plugged in something and then i'm asking myself based on what i plugged in how much of this do i need to get that 90 gram mark Right. And so that ranged everything from a breakfast in the morning to different snacks to lunches to dinners, etc. I don't look at protein. I don't sit there and evaluate like, did I hit the minimum threshold? Because for me, I know if I've got protein at breakfast, I've got protein at lunch, I've got protein at dinner, I'm at least hitting 90, which is about where I would need to be in terms of recovery for the hike. And the premise of that um, is for protein and there's a there's a podcast we did i can't remember what number it is go back and look at it but it talks about protein dosing and backcountry and stuff um the premise of protein on a hike in the backcountry on a hunt whatever is you're not trying to grow the muscle the way that you are in a training block of heavy strength where you're eating at a higher amount of protein to try to add muscle the growth or the the idea of protein dosing in the backcountry is you're just trying to recover repair the muscle the thresholds that exist for recovery and repair versus growth of a muscle are dramatically different. And one of the nice things about that fact being true is logistically speaking, it's really hard to try to shove a ton of protein into a nutrition plan for the backcountry. So yeah, I split it up by hours and then plugged in things that sounded good to me because that's rule number one, right? Like the only nutrition that matters is what you can actually eat. And then decided, okay, well, how much of this do I need to actually get in to meet the demands for the course of the day? And I wound up at about 6,000 calories, 975 grams of carbs per day. Did you consume all that? I did not because we did not do what I had planned, right? Like, so episode one, we talked about how we had to audible day one. I, uh... I got close and this is going to be a big case of irony about the only thing I did not put down entirely was all of my gummy bears. And that was because 
like I had, I had like, I think I had 11 ounces of gummy bears per day, which would have fit the anticipated mileage, which was what, like 50 or 60 miles, 28,000 feet of climbing. So I ate, I ended up eating about half of that bag per day. So had, had quite a bit left when we got back. It's mm. a lot of gummy bears. It is a lot of gummy bears, but I was, it would have been a lot of miles though too. So yeah, I was more than, more than happy to throw those down. Um, so talk a little bit about what you did bring things you liked, things you didn't like, things you couldn't stomach, or maybe you were able to get it all in. Yeah, I did. Again, I think this just goes back to like experience and knowing that on something like a death hike in particular, there's moments where things that sounded good when you packed don't sound good when you're hiking, right? You're exhausted. So I feel like I've weeded out a lot of what doesn't work for me. And thankfully, pretty much everything I did take on this trip kind of always sounded good. There's moments where certain things sounded better than others, but there wasn't anything that I looked at and was like, oh, there's not a chance I can, you know, stomach this or eat this right now. Um, I'll just run down the list real quick. And I think you can um, share the link later that I have for my food and my gear, Kyle. Um, but I had one package of Pop-Tarts every day, um, Nature Valley nut butter biscuits. I just, those always sound good. I pack them on all my hunts, plus they're cheap, which is great. Um, my wife makes this dessert, like this homemade, imagine taking Rice Krispie treats, but use Golden Grahams instead of Rice Krispies, and then mix in like some chocolate, so it's more like a s'mores. And then again, I was at Target and randomly saw that Golden Graham actually makes these s'more bars now which looks very similar to my wife's dessert that she makes. So at a couple of those bars, I had um, some nature bakery fig bars, honey stinger waffles, the big sir bar, um, some sweet and spicy trail mix, uh, almond snickers, quite a bit of tailwind, um, gummy bears, and then kind of like a main entree for the night. So i both on hunts as well as something like a death hike, I don't generally plan kind of like you did, Kyle, to have meals or be very strategic. I just plan an overall calorie goal for the day and then have some variability based on how I'm feeling or what sounds good in terms of how much I eat. I definitely try to be somewhat consistent. Like you said, not going too long of a stretch without intake and calories. Uh, but there's definitely if you know, if we have like a break and I only feel like a little bit of food, I may only take on a little bit of food. And then maybe three hours later, I am pretty hungry and I'll eat quite a bit more. So I don't, I don't get too specific throughout the day other than eating by feel or making sure that I don't allow myself to get behind because then you start feeling bad and then things don't sound good. And it's because you're already kind of behind, whether that's on calories or hydration. But um, yeah, I keep it pretty simple. That's what it looked like. Everything worked well. Um, trying to think of any takeaways. Like I, I definitely packed more Tailwind, so more liquid calories than I had in years past. I've been using Tailwind for quite a while now, but um, I had 700 calories per day, which is higher than what I've brought in the past and um, really enjoyed that. And everything, yeah, everything pretty much worked well. Yeah, I... Uh packed a lot of the same for me and i'd actually sent you a message um privately like before we left of saying hey you know what's the mo for this do you guys like throw down a granola bar while they're moving for breakfast do you wake up like and pack up camp make some coffee and then go you know like what's the what's the typical norm and you kind of said you know there's a there's a there's a mix of different things and so like i was in i was in the middle group there was kind of a you know, front group of middle group. And then, um, a couple guys who honestly, they stopped and took more pictures. So you can call it the rear group, but in reality, they were just enjoying it more. <laughs> um, so I, I had, uh, I was with those guys. And so we, most all of us stopped and we would make breakfast before we would get going. So I like having a meal. Like I like doing that versus just some snacks. And so there's differences, right? Like there is no right and wrong. And a lot of folks that I'll talk to, like they, I think sometimes the assumption is, is there is a, when it comes to nutrition, there is a correct answer to that. And sometimes it's not, there's so much 
individuality and what works for you and what you prefer. And, and no one would be more right or wrong than the other person. And so for me in the mornings, I always do just for simple reasons, uh, oatmeal with fruit and a little bit of um, protein powder in it and coffee. Lunches are pretty generic and then dinners are some sort of a dehydrated meal that I've made. The snacks in between there are really just things that I love. So like woven in there were uh, golden grams with dehydrated bananas. There was a bag of Pop-Tarts, two Uncrustables. My favorite thing and the thing, you know, every day that sounded good to me, I never had problems pulling out and knowing it would be good was either those Uncrustables or these homemade bars that, um, that we make. And I can't remember if we recap this one other time or not, but we call them Audrey bars at our house because we've got a friend named Audrey who used to make them for us and she finally came off the recipe. And so I started making them and they are, I mean, basically just a conglomeration of oats and some spices and vanilla and I make them. I don't make them because I'm afraid of buying a something in a wrapper. I make them because they're delicious and I can make them huge. So they were big and they were excellent. I loved those, ate those quite a bit. One thing I did not like, two things I did not like. One, I never, in the middle of a hike, especially like we were on when it was hot, never got excited about opening my bag and seeing jerky. And I was just like, I just, it was there and maybe I would nibble on a few pieces of it, but like it just never sounded good. The second was for a couple of my lunches, I brought, um, I, I can't, did we do, I don't think we've shared the pro tip about the bagels. Yeah. <laughs> I think well, I didn't. We, we certainly record. have to. Yeah. We certainly okay. have to. If this is a repeat, I apologize. So for lunches every day, <laughs> I love doing bagels. Tortillas just bore me. Plus sometimes I bring tortillas for dinner and I don't want to double up. Thinking about like pack logistics, not wanting to take up a bunch of space in the bag for this because there was already going to be a ton of food in the tent and etc. I thought, how can I get these bagels smaller? So I'm with my wife and, um, you know, I'm talking to her about my game plan. I think, I think, man, I'm smartest guy on the planet when I come up with this. And to give you an idea of our dynamic, like she's definitely the voice of reason. We came home one night and the door was locked. So I go into the garage to get the sledgehammer to knock the doorknob off so we can get into our house. Cause I think we're locked out. And she's like, what are you doing? Just get the key. I was like, oh yeah. So she's the voice of reason in my Spare moment key. of like logic, yeah, lack of logic and emotion. So I tell her, I was like, I'm gonna put this bagel in a Ziploc bag and I'm gonna run it over <laughs> with the car to get it flat. And she's like, or you could just put one of the weights in the garage on top of it to get it flat. And so I did. I a perfect like 45 pound bumper plate hole over hole bagel over bumper plate creates like a perfect pancake so i took that on the death hike for every day uh bumblebee or um starkist one of those make pre-made chicken salads you don't have to take a bunch of mayo and stuff you just open it and it's it's decent it's not it's not bad i tried to get fancy and found some pulled pork from walmart that's normally fairly good we were on day two we just finished this side hill and we were sitting on top of um top of a ridge line and then in the sun baking and man i could not do it there was no way that i could pull that stuff out and stand to stomach it so meat meaty and saucy type things after long outputs uh after sweating a lot after being hot after being in the sun those are a couple of things that for me like i just I have a tough time putting down. Yeah. yeah. I'm the same. I mean, I didn't, I will usually pack, um, on hunts like those sticks, Kyle from the, you know, there's a sausage shop, uh, near me that makes these amazing line Jager, like dried meat sticks. And I'll pack those on hunts, um, quite a bit, but on a death hike, I never bring those or usually jerky or anything else. So, um, I really don't get any meat intake except for that main like dehydrated entree at night generally for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those sticks are the best, which is I a, need to send you some, 
Oh man, you do need to send me some. Although I need to keep it under wraps this time because my wife, every time we get a batch of jerky, I go in there the other day, like we had, uh, there was a couple of geese that I shot over the winter, made a big batch of jerky out of that. I go in there the other day, I'm thinking, oh, I've got this for, for hunting. Nope, have to come up with plan B because she's thrown down, <laughs> she just loves all the jerky. So she had those um, whenever you'd sent us a bag last time and she's a fan too. So I don't know, I need to, I don't know, I need to come up with a better a more clever uh, storage option. So those were kind of the uh, the main snacks and stuff that I had brought. Um, but I also brought a large number of calories from Gatorade and gummy bears. And, you know, like for the Gatorade, what I would do is I would just fill fill up a, a um, just a clear collapsible platypus bottle sprinkle a good dose i like mine more concentrated so i'd actually make it higher calorie higher carb just for the taste alone mix that up and then every time we came to water just would refill it so i was drinking on that all day as well as filling in the gaps of these main meals and snacks quote unquote with gummy bears or anything else that i needed it worked great i mean i never ever felt i felt great the entire time from a fuel standpoint so Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's one thing that because I brought more tailwind or like a Gatorade type thing, I was, it was in the past, I think I've used it strategically or specifically like, okay, let me get some of this in before a big climb or, um, let me get some in at a break and kind of chug that 16 or 20 ounces or whatever, maybe with a snack to prepare for the next couple hours. But because I had a higher volume of it, I did much more what you did and could just kind of have like that constant sip on it. Um, and just that steady flow. And I really did like that. I just think it, for me, it helped keep me away from any of those swings or like low yeah. points or intake. Cause I was always having that a little bit on board. Yeah. And I mean, that's something we talk about all the time for stuff like this is timing and totals. And when you're looking at carbon take in particular, it's about hitting those totals. What's your total need? What's your hourly need based on output? But the timing's important too, right? Like, so the 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 number one reason the wall happens is because the, the well or the reservoir of fuel is drained. So constantly topping it off is as advantageous as throwing something down, you know, before a big big climb. Jump into the gear stuff. A couple of questions on that. What was your overall pack weight? It was, let me pull my spreadsheet. And I will, I'll link that too. I know you've got, you've developed a spreadsheet for your gear as well as your food. I will make one of those. We'll link both of them in the show notes. So if anybody's interested in really nerding out on that, they can. Uh, so base pack weight by that, I mean, without food, water, or fuel. So like gear without um, consumables was right at almost 17 pounds it was like 16.7 um food for the three days was basically about 10 pounds um and then a fuel canister is about half a pound and then if you're carrying call it two pound or sorry uh two liters of water at any given time it's four and a half ish so basically i was running around with food fuel and water most of the time right over 30 pounds would have been like 31.6 with those specific specs on water i think i was at a total pack weight of 35 with water and food if i remember right i had a base weight of 20 to 21 pounds and a whole lot of food plus i carried including that collapsible bottle uh, of um, that collapsible platypus bottle of gatorade I think I carried two liters of water plus that liter. So three liters total wound up somewhere around, around 35 pounds. Yeah. That seemed to be the average. Like I, most guys were somewhere between 33 to 36 kind of from what I was hearing. Yeah. Uh, from a gear standpoint, does anything stand out as, you know, life changing something that you really remember? Boy, I'm sure glad that that was in there. No. Um, and I feel like that's a good thing. <laughs> um, yeah. Again, I think I just between both death hikes and how many backpack hunts I've done at this point, I just don't change much anymore generally, um, which, you know, part of me always loves testing stuff and trying stuff and all that. And I still do. But at the end of the day, I love the fact of like, this is proven. This works. I've been doing this for years. Boom. It is what it is. Um, so nothing new kind of stands out. Um, 
one random one that's newer in the past year i've started using these boxers from a company called exoskin um i absolutely love those and for something like the death hike i mean guys have had really bad experiences with chafing and packing you know powder and ointments and all that type of stuff um especially on something like this year it happened to be so hot you're sweating constantly that could be an issue for sure and i just really have um I really, really like those boxers. I'd used them before this death hike, but um, they're definitely a standout. There wasn't too much different. Um, used kind of the same sleep system I always do, just looking at stuff. Cook, water, all that's the same. And I'll link, uh, like I'll link, I'll link your the gear list. So if guys are interested in seeing specifically like what constitutes your sleep system, they can look at that. Uh, well, two side notes. One, I know that you normally ran the it was it the Enlightened Equipment bivy that they don't make anymore? Yes. And yep. you've been messing with the catabatic one that is in production. Do you like it? Yeah. So the I've been when I hunt with a bivy or take any trip with a bivy, I have an it's called the Enlightened Equipment Recon Bivy, um, which they no longer make. Uh, it's a great bivy. It's seven ounces. And then Steve, he runs a bivy a lot. And the one he uses is from Jimmy's Tarps, which is no longer made. So we talk quite a bit about, you know, using bivies on the podcast and they'll be in our gear list. And all the time people are like, which one is it? And both of us are like, well, you kind of kind of can't get it right. Um, and we've we've recommended the Catabatic because it from a design material spec perspective is very similar um, and then I got so tired of saying, Hey, like you can't buy what I have, but I would recommend the catabatic. I was doing that based on again, specs and materials and also knowing the other stuff from catabatic I've tried has been great. So I kind of have some level of trust with those guys. Um, but I did recently get their catabatic bivy, uh, the pinion. And it's awesome, especially if you happen to use one of their quilts, which I do. It has like a built-in attachment um, that you can use for both your quilt and your sleeping pad built right into the bivy. Um, has, yeah, stick-out points, which my Enlightened did. You can pull the mesh up off of your face. It has a loop for that, which my Enlightened did. So it's very, very similar. Not the same, but very similar to the Enlightened equipment. Um and I have used it a bit now and plan to continue to use that moving forward. Do you want to sell the Enlightened equipment? Yeah, I could. Yeah. Get you hooked up. Yeah, we'll talk offline. The other question that I had, we had done this on the first one. You had said that you used, uh, like you talked a little bit about the different sun shirts, which I feel like were an absolute must on this one, especially with the amount of exposure. I know you've always traditionally loved the Outdoor Research Echo hoodie. This year you tried one from Sitka. Was there one you preferred versus one you didn't? And maybe even like your thoughts. I, I know these, but I think you have really great perspective. One or two sentences on do you like Merino versus Synthetics? Um, yeah, so between those two, I started using a sun hoodie on the very first death hike I did, I think it was 2016, maybe 2015. Um, and it, it just proved to be amazing just to, to help literally block sun exposure, not being a short sleeve shirt, neck, ears, everything. I keep the hood up almost the whole time generally as well. Uh, but they're obviously light and breathe well. So the uh, Outdoor Research Echo that you said, that's the one I've been using for years and years and years. And it was just, I've used it so much, it was worn ragged uh, and needed to get a new one. I picked up the Sitka Core Lightweight. Um, it very similar, has thumb hole loops still, but also added a zip so you can ventilate it even further, which was great. And um, it just fit. So like for me fit means a lot and i've tried some cheaper hoodies and other things and for me they were just like either too boxy in the body too short in the sleeves i'm just i'm kind of long and slender so fit for me is sometimes difficult um in the sitka fit great so i ran that really happy with it um i'm going to be running it on uh, my mountain goat hunt this fall for example in terms of synthetic versus merino 
they both have their place. I think based on the conditions, they both have strengths or weaknesses, potential downsides, and just a lot of preference involved. Um, you know, for years, one of the downsides to synthetics has always been that they just get stinky, nasty, quick. Um, I think there's been a lot of progress made in terms of um, preventing that with synthetics. So like Sitka, for example, uses polygene um, and it truly does keep odor down. Um, there's different approaches. Some other companies will weave in like different materials into the fabric. And one thing I very on a practical level I do to test that stuff is as gross as this sounds, I'll work out in stuff and just not wash it. And just like, how many days can I hike in this? Like, and by days, I mean workouts, right? So if I go hike and it's just drenched for two hours, I'll bring it home, let it air dry, and I'll hike in it again a day or two days later or run in it, et cetera, um, just to see what type of odor it builds up over high output to simulate, man, how bad is this going to be on day three of a backpack hunt, for example. Um, so the Sitka's done great in that regard. I, um, I've never been a fan of Merino for underwear. So like I mentioned before, boxers, those exoskin are great. Um, or even like good old Under Armour, their boxer jocks are pretty standard. Those have honestly been great for me. Merino I have generally worn is base layers up top. Um, for hunting, anyway, for the death hike, I've typically done a synthetic sun hoodie, like I mentioned. And then I think it just depends on continued use of like choosing between the two. Um, like for the mountain goat hunt, I mentioned it not only has a pretty high level of pre precipitation in general, but it's just a very high humidity environment. So when you do get wet, stuff just doesn't dry out. And we experienced that a bit on this death hike, um, being somewhat coastal, is that Merino... Yes, it retains warmth when wet, but it also doesn't dry as quickly as synthetics do. And to, based on the environment, humidity levels, um, that can become somewhat a, of a hindrance as well. So I'll continue to use both Merino and synthetics moving forward, um, kind of depending on the time of year and where I'm hunting um, and things like that. I used a kind of a budget option sun shirt from a company called Belief. That's B A L. EAF, um, get it on Amazon. It ranked as like the budget pick on outdoor outdoor gear labs sun shirts. So I have I had that one. Um, I have some merino stuff from like First Light that you could use as a sun shirt. I've got uh, Patagonia Capoline. The belief has, like you said, as a budget option, a weird fit. Um, it's you know like so the normal size that I wear swallowed me. The size down looks like you painted it on. <laughs> um, so it, it does have an interesting fit, but it, like the quality of it's good. It's got a UPF to prevent against sun exposure. And I ended up wearing it. It did good, but it does not breathe as well as like my Capoline or the, the Merino. So there's always trade-offs and it kind of depends on how much cash you want. I mean, the price difference between some of those two, I think the Belief's 20 bucks on Amazon first light merino is more than that <laughs> uh and uh the capoline i actually got on a sale through rei outlet and paid 33 given the options again i'd probably get the capoline on sale if i can find it so if you're you know like if you're paying attention throughout the course of the year and you're not in any sort of a hurry you can definitely grab really really good gear for really really inexpensive prices um, if you're not like in an urgent, urgent need to buy gear for me that stood out was, um, kind of like you said, I, most everything I had I'd used before I use Solomon quest, which have always worked really well for me, worked well this time. I have a pair of, well, I have a lot of pairs of the Eddie Bauer, um, guide pant. I can't remember like the formal name for it. You can pick those up on black Friday for half off. So I've gotten multiple pairs for 40 bucks. I've had to, the, the pair that I wore on the death hike or the pair that I wear hunting, they have had a lot of TLC. And one of the main reasons I learned how to sew so I could repair those, uh, but they've been awesome. And aside from that, they've held up well. They did get on this as well. I did buy a quilt for this because I wanted to reduce weight and I wanted to reduce space. So I bought a catabatic, I can never remember the name of it, but it's the 22 degree. I didn't get, 
Alsek. I did not. I mean, we were in like 50s, so I don't know about the warmth yet. That's TBD. But um, I will tell you, I love a quilt. Like the ability to be able to throw my leg out and the ability to be able to do everything you can't do in a mummy bag. That was great. Second piece of gear that's extremely budget friendly was a collapsible coffee mug from Sea to Summit. Normally, I'll use a GSI Infinity mug, I think is what it's called, which I really like. Uh, but like, it's just space. So this collapsible mug basically folds into the width of... Geez, it's not even a hockey puck. It's like um, maybe a pancake, maybe, and then collapse, collapses out. It did, it did awesome. I love that little thing and might just start using it for any backpacking that I do. But... Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think some. I mean, I love playing, buying gear, just playing with it. But there's a lot to be said for knowing what's in there. Like you don't have to question. Boy, I sure hope this works right when I pull it out. Like just to know, you, you're able to like focus on the task at hand, which is really important if you're hunting, right? You're able to just go hunt. You're not having to worry like, oh man, I hope this piezo igniter works because I don't have a lighter. Or I hope that whatever works whenever you just know what's in here has never failed you it's fun to play with gear but there's also a lot for to be said for the confidence that you've got uh in what you have yeah and i somewhat feel like beating a dead horse with this comment but i just always come back to it's like use as much of your stuff as often as possible um it doesn't have to be a hunt it doesn't have to be a death hike like if you're trying this new belief base layer, for example, like do that while you're training, hiking, do that while you're fishing. Do I, I wore uh, this Sitka core lightweight hoodie because it's in a solid, not a camo. I wore it golfing the other day just as a oh, nice. hoodie, right? So it's I like, I didn't know you were a golfer. Oh, I'm not. <laughs> That's a whole different story. <laughs> it's like a family <laughs> thing. Anyway. Um, yeah. Just you like find an excuse, use your stuff as much as possible. Um you know, I mean, just weird examples. Like if you're camping with the family, you probably don't need to use quote unquote backpacking gear, but you can, right? So like just find as many opportunities to use stuff, to test stuff, to to prove gear to you, which then builds confidence. And as you said, when you have that experience and the confidence with what you're using, now when you do go into a big trip, like a death hike or a hunt, you're not, you give it no, like I don't go into a hunt with like with zero concern or thought as to yeah. my gear right like if i've planned the gear list and i know what i've packed but all my experience with it has already happened and now i'm just focused on the hunt and what i have helps me on that hunt or on that pursuit yeah 100 percent. we've gone family camping multiple times and Lindsay will be like was this supposed to be that cold I'll say no why and why do you have like three down jackets and four grid fleece <laughs> I was like, well, I just want to try them. <laughs> At this point, she's just like, just put it in. She, she doesn't even ask anymore. So, all right. So to wrap it up, this was a question. We recapped last time. You had a great answer again. Um, was there ever a point in your life for either of you that you thought it would be, it would never be possible to do something like this from a physical standpoint? So, you know, my perception of that question is I am not in a place where I could even fathom taking on a big, big, big pursuit. Have you ever felt like that prior to, you know, now maybe you're in the condition to do that every year, but has there ever been a point in your life where you didn't feel like that? I don't remember what I said last time. So if it was a great answer, I don't know if I can do it again. <laughs> um, what comes to mind is I didn't have things like this on my radar so it wasn't that I was sitting back thinking about things like this and going, oh, I wish I could someday. I will say that if 12 years ago you were to come to me and explain the things that I've done in the last 12 years, I would have said you were crazy. So um, things like death hikes, backcountry hunts, trips, um, trail runs, hikes, like a list of things that I feel fortunate to have been able to do, like fortunate, fortunate meaning, yes, the opportunity, but the physical capability to do, um, wouldn't have been something I would have thought I would have been able to have done. So, and that really boils down to 
if you would have told me that 12 years ago, I said, no, you're crazy because of this, that, and the other thing. And I would have been right in the sense that I couldn't do it then. But I think we just undervalue what can be done over the course of time. Not with these dramatic changes, but with really small changes that just compound and with consistency. So um, I'm definitely in a much different place physically, capability-wise, than I was 12 years ago. And the only thing I can attribute that to is consistency over a long period of time. That was pretty much your answer last time, so well done. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think for me, yeah, the, the first thing that your brain goes to is like when I was 270 pounds 15 years ago, stuff like this <laughs> was like not even on my radar i mean you said that well like i the idea of doing that like it didn't even appeal to me right things like this now appeal to me but back then it was like i've just it's almost like saying do i want to try liverwurst or something right like i would try liverwurst but i think you know what i'm saying like, it's just something <laughs> yeah. that i just didn't i just it wasn't even on my radar i had no interest in it i, I think the only thing that i would add to your answer or if i were going to try to contribute in a way beyond what you'd already said because you said what you said well it would be that even after i'd lost the weight and have some sort of measurable baseline fitness which by the way is not that great it's all relative but for me it's you know able to go do things that i enjoy doing i would not have thought i mean i am not some like high physical athlete. I don't have some physically athletic prowess, right? Like I'm not genetically gifted. I'm not setting land speed records. My mile time on trail runs would never win anything, but I enjoy doing it. And so I don't really care what my mile times are. Being not in, not thinking that I am of this elite level athlete, I would not have thought I could go do something like this, but it, that was, that is 190% in your head. And I think we've said this before. I think this is what I said last time. I've always been better at just committing and then figuring it out as opposed to processing everything ahead of time, letting that processing intimidate me from ever trying. So yeah, I think, I think the takeaway here is, and this is what we recapped last time, at least for me, is if you don't let the what ifs intimidate you so much that you don't try you're going to be far better off and probably far more successful just committing and then figuring it out right as opposed to never ever allowing yourself the opportunity to figure it out um without committing yeah it's great all right man thanks for doing it again yeah it's fun